1: In 1985, someone, somewhere deep in the Texas Department of Transportation, had a flash of inspiration. A new slogan to deal with the litter problem plaguing their highways. Don't mess with Texas. Over the decades, every Lone Star State celebrity, from guitarist Stevie Ray Vaughan to actor Matthew McConaughey, has been recruited to the cause. And the motto has become a universal expression of Texas pride. It's not a phrase you come across often in California. But last week, it appeared on twin billboards, one looming over an intersection in the San Francisco Bay Area and another in LA's Hollywood Hills. A hooded figure peers down from each, the eyes hidden behind sinister red mirrored glasses. And in a grim twist, the advert invokes recent mass shootings and replaces don't mess with Texas with a new phrase, don't move to Texas. No one has yet taken credit for the ad, but the campaign has been seen as a continuation of the culture war between the two states, led by governors Gavin Newsom and Greg Abbott. In recent months, Newsom has placed ads in Texas newspapers condemning abortion bans and lax gun laws, while Abbott has crowed over Californian companies such as Tesla relocating to Texas. But it's not just Texas and California. Red and blue states have always been different, but today they are drifting so far apart on policy that it's sometimes hard to see how they can remain part of the same country. I'm John Prudhoe, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, the state-by-state splintering of American policy. That America's national identity is as a collection of individual states is written into the country's very name. Each state's ability to experiment, iterate, and differentiate has been a source of strength. But as American federal politics have become more partisan, so have the states. And American policy is now dividing into two distinct blocks. How is this new, fractured federalism changing the Union? With me this week to discuss the centrifugal forces acting on American states are Alexandra Switch Bass in Dallas and Idris Kaloon, normally in Washington, but currently sitting in a motel in Michigan, which looks like something from a 1970s horror film. Idris, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I've got a magnificent view of a parking lot right now. Yeah. I mean, how can you not be cheery? Uh, Exactly. And Alexandra, how are you doing? What's going on in Dallas?
0: Everything's going well. Thanks, John. We started preschool this week, and it's the first time that we've had a brief for how to prepare for an active shooter uh, who would arrive at the school. This is actually going back to the billboard theme of Uvalde and whether or not the Texas Miracle is still alive. But we had to memorize the address and we're told not to come to the school if there's something that happens and the like. So somewhat grim, but a new world in Texas.
1: I've experienced that too as a parent in America, and you feel kind of conflicted, right? On the one hand, you think it's awful that a small child should be having to go through this. On the other hand, you kind of feel grateful that there's a plan. At least that was my response.
0: Yeah, I think there is something to that, but just contemplating it is is so grim.
1: There's actually a connection between your experience there, which relates, I think, partly to Texas's loose gun laws and to loose state gun laws nationally, And this week's cover package, of which you're the author, which is about the way in which American states are pulling further apart in terms of policy. So can you tell us a bit about the reporting that you did for that package and who you've been talking to?
0: Yes, I write a lot about different states, and I'm especially interested in the California versus Texas example. But I've been noticing that across a huge range of issues, it seems that states are pushing farther apart from each other. And one of the places you see this is in the role of governors.
2: I think individual Americans in each state are recognizing how important their governor is when it comes to uh, enacting policies. Certainly Tate
0: Reeves is the governor of Mississippi, which is perhaps America's most conservative state. I should note we spoke before the water crisis currently paralyzing his state capital. Reeves is young, just 48 and an economist fan, for what it's worth. When we spoke, he was overwhelmingly positive about the ways that states are getting to call the shots. I, I
2: do agree uh, with the thesis that, that, that we as, a, uh, as individual states are headed in that direction. Um, but if you think about the founding of our country, uh, that's really what was envisioned. And so as we in America have moved more and more towards a Supreme Court that, that actually can read the Constitution and interpret it, uh, the way in which it was originally enacted, we're going to move m- more and more in that direction, which I certainly believe is a good thing.
0: Reeves is on a high because it was his state's 2018 abortion restriction that returned the issue to the Supreme Court and set the stage for the reversal of Roe versus Wade in June.
2: I, I think Mississippi has led on social and cultural issues for years, and there will certainly be um, opportunities for us to do that. But my focus right now is making sure that in the post-Dobbs, Mississippi, that we create that culture of life.
0: Governor Reeves is proud of the other cultural fronts Mississippi is fighting on against vaccine mandates, teaching critical race theory, and transgender students taking part in school sports on the basis of their gender
2: identity. So the people through the democratic process will have their voices heard, and it's going to be very different in, in states like Mississippi than it's going to be in states like California. And that's okay. That's what the Constitution envisioned.
0: But the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, doesn't see it like that. When we spoke at his office in Sacramento, he was as upset as Reeves was upbeat.
3: It's a great unraveling. All the progress that I've enjoyed in my 50 plus years, um, all being unraveled in real time. It's the, some have returned to the rights revolution unraveling in, in front of us. And it's state by state in very effective and profound terms.
0: He fears Roe is just the beginning and that other Supreme Court cases will return more power to the states, which he thinks will result in people's rights being trampled on.
3: There's apparently, any judicial considerations are secondary to historic considerations. But then that has to then, by definition, then extend to issues like interracial marriage. I, who knows where this stops? And I used to think that was hyperbolic. I honestly did until this year. I really did. I, I thought we were a little hyperbolic, a little now, I just quite the contrary.
0: Newsom's consolation is that his state, California, can act as a defender and extender of liberal values, at least within its borders.
3: So I want balanced budgets. I want people to be wildly successful. Um, but I also want a policy of inclusion and equity. I'm not ashamed about that. I don't like what's going on in this country. It's, 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 it's distressing. But you know, I woke up every day, what a gift. California.
0: Tate Reeves and Gavin Newsom may have opposite visions of the American ideal, but the states are not only diverging at the polls. This is a national phenomenon.
4: The divergence between policies in different states is much larger today than it used to be.
0: Chris Um, Warshaw is a political scientist at George Washington University and co-author of a forthcoming book called Dynamic Democracy.
4: We collected data on about 200 salient state policies over the past 80 years, about 100 of which continue to the present. And so based on those um, many policies, we're able to quantify how liberal or conservative the overall um, state policy landscape is in every single state in the country over the last 80 years.
0: What Warshaw and his co-author find is that while rights and services have long differed depending on which state one lives in, the differences are growing markedly.
4: You saw, you know, much more sort of, I don't want to say randomness, but like idiosyncraticness across states. So that even very liberal states might actually have a bunch of conservative policies and more conservative states would have some liberal policies. Whereas today, you know, if you're Vermont or California, you probably have policies that are on the liberal end of the spectrum on pretty much everything. And if you're in Mississippi, you have policies that are on the conservative end of the spectrum on pretty much everything.
0: The capacity to make those changes has increased as American society has got generally more liberal over the past 50 years or so. And the activists within each party have moved farther
4: apart. Before the 1970s, almost every state in the country restricted access to abortion. And before the 1980s and 90s, basically every state... Um, had very restrictive LGBT rights. So that over time, what we've seen is that on a lot of these hotly debated cultural issues, there's just more and more things where they're able to polarize. And I think over the past 30 years, gridlock in Washington means there's like less and less that Congress does. And so many policy areas where in previous eras, maybe Congress would have passed some sort of uniform national policy. The states have a lot more room to adopt different policies.
0: As these experiments progress, the one thing Newsom and Reeves agree on is that the answers no longer lie within the beltway.
4: It would be
2: better for the long-term viability of the country uh, if Washington did a whole hell of a lot less.
3: It's gotta be governors, it's gotta be local leaders. These guys understand bottom-up. We gotta get serious. I am suggesting we wake up that it's not about Washington. Everyone goes back to Washington, D.C. Stop.
1: So, Alexandra, American states differ from each other, and they have a certain amount of leeway when it comes to making policy and always have had. And that's okay, right? But Make the case that what's going on now is different, both, I suppose, in scale and in terms of effect.
0: I'd point to a few reasons for why we are seeing states be the engine of policymaking. First of all, we're seeing the Supreme Court turn a lot of power over to states. The most high-profile example of this, of course, is the recent Dobbs decision, which overturned Roe v. Wade and left the issue of abortion to states. But that's not the only one where we're seeing this. And we have a conservative majority that strongly believes in states' rights. So I think we're going to see even more on the issues of voting and other subjects be left to the States. And of course, another reason that this issue of states diverging on policy is getting so much attention is because of COVID. I think that red states implemented such different policies than blue states as it related to mask mandates, vaccine mandates, and even businesses staying open, that this became a top of mind issue for people. Another thing I'd point to that's very different today than previous times is one party control of states. We've seen the rise of trifecta states where one party control, both chambers of the legislature and the governorship. There's 37 states today, which has doubled in the last 30 years. And that's another reason why we're seeing a strong partisan shift in policymaking. And instead of seeing individual states craft their own policies, we're seeing a sharing of ideas across only blue or across red states. Um, not between them. Um, And that's a really big shift. And that's why we're seeing laws pushed to new extremes.
5: One thing that I've been thinking about as I've been reading Alexander's piece is whether or not this divergence between the states is downstream of national politics or whether it's contributing to it. What's the feedback loop? And I, I, I wonder how it works. I think that there's an argument that gridlock in Washington is causing all of this. But what Alexander has pointed out is that polarization has spread to the states such that they're able to basically pursue the agenda that they would like to see happen in Washington completely untrammeled. And there isn't really reversal year after year like we see in DC. It was always the case that states were competing with one another about taxes, and that never felt like it was an existential sort of worry. But what we see now is that states are competing on things like whether people should be prosecuted for giving abortions, whether you allow people to vote in certain ways, whether you allow certain kinds of, of therapy or surgery for, for trans kids, what what do you do with illegal immigrants? And to Alexandra's point, in California, they are expanding Medicaid benefits basically out of their own pocket to, to pay for undocumented immigrants basically throughout life. Whereas in Texas, Governor Abbott is sending busloads of undocumented immigrants to New York and DC and has openly fantasized about not having to pay for public education for kids brought over illegally. So it seems like it's it's hit a fever pitch but I don't know whether it's the states are merely becoming the sort of funhouse mirror version of DC or whether they are a completely orthogonal phenomenon.
0: There's this tremendous irony because the founders, of course, never envisioned what was happening, the total media obsession with what's happening in Washington, and that states would be responding to what's happening in Washington more than their other states. And then, of course, sharing the the zealotry among themselves um, and acting as blocks. There's been a real perversion of intent, and I've been thinking a lot about that as I've been reading the Federalist Papers.
1: Um, We should all read the Federalist Papers every week, of course. One other thing that struck me is that the governors of different states seem to be enjoying kind of trolling each other on national political themes. So you have, as we've mentioned already, Greg Abbott sending busloads of undocumented migrants to New York. And meanwhile, you have Gavin Newsom, California's governor, running adverts in Florida attacking Ron DeSantis. I mean, that stuff feels new to me.
0: Absolutely. And I think one of the things that I don't mention in the piece but is so important about how states are acting is the ambition for higher office that these politicians have. You have Greg Abbott when he was attorney general and the now governor of Texas um, and has presidential aspirations using his state as a platform for showing what his policies are and what they could be if he achieved even higher office same absolutely with gavin newsom even though he denied that he was running for president when i asked him directly but it's strongly rumored that he is considering it and then of course same for ron DeSantis in florida
5: yeah i mean it'll surprise no one also that uh if you're a partisan you pick and choose Your moments of when you are an ardent believer of federalism and when you are an ardent believer in a strong federal government, we see that uh, Democrats, for example, are very happy to have strong environmental rules be issued from the EPA, um, very much against states going their own way, but are very much in favor of California having its own waiver to allow them to do uh, stronger protections that are nationally mandated. So the commitment is largely, I think, in what is in service to your political aims. I think for conservatives, that ends up being a little bit more in their favor, just because they they would like a little bit more divergence. And there is some affinity there. But I mean, on on the whole, you know, everyone's commitment only goes so far.
0: Well, and you saw that in this last Supreme Court session where... The, in the same session that they overturned Roe v. Wade, they did not uphold New York's ban on guns and said that the state did not have the right to restrict firearms in that way and require a permit.
1: Yeah, even the justices, the selective federalists. Okay, we'll go back to the unlikely origin of the idea of states as laboratories in a moment. But first, the usual reminder, there's never been a better time to subscribe to The Economist if you don't already do so. If you don't, then to read or listen to everything that we do, you'll need a subscription. Idris, Alexander, what have you particularly enjoyed from this week's Economist? In addition to Alexandra's very good briefing and cover leader,
5: I really enjoyed reading our obituary of Mikhail Gorbachev and all of our coverage of his death and its unfortunate symbolism now that Russia seems to be closing a door on on freedom.
0: Yeah, I second that. I think it's so hard to distinguish uh, writing when it comes to a major world event that every newspaper is paying attention to. But I, I think our colleagues managed to do it.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. It helps that our Russia editor, Arkady, met Gorbachev a couple of times. And Arkady was born in the Soviet Union, and got the chance to thank Gorbachev for liberating him. And he's talked about that quite movingly. I think Gorbachev was quite taken aback when Arkady said this to him. Anyway, to read all of that, you'll need a subscription. Economist.com slash US pod is the link to subscribe. You'll find it in the notes for this episode. Ernest Liebman just wanted to sell ice. His family had opened Oklahoma's first ice plant in 1902, and in the years before home refrigerators, it was a lucrative profession. But then, in 1925, Oklahoma law changed. Ice sellers became classed as public utilities. They'd need a licence to operate, and these were hard to come by. Liebman didn't have a licence, but was undeterred. When he built a new factory, however, two licensed competitors sued. New State Ice versus Liebman made it to the Supreme Court in 1932, and in a 6-2 ruling, the justices sided with Liebman. Under the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, they deemed the Oklahoma law unconstitutional as it stopped him freely practising his business. The most notable thing about the ruling, however, wasn't the impact on Oklahoma's ice industry, but a judicial nugget tucked into a dissenting opinion by the oldest member of the
3: court. The oldest justice, Louis Dembitz Brandeis of Kentucky, 80, of distinguished Jewish ancestry, so bitterly opposed as a crusading liberal in 1912 that Wilson dared not appoint him attorney general, but did appoint him to the court.
1: The liberal justice, Louis Brandeis, wrote that, a single courageous state may, if its citizens choose, serve as a laboratory and try novel social and economic experiments without risk to the rest of the country. Long after Oklahoma's ice industry melted away, the phrase laboratories of democracy has endured, reached for by governors, senators and presidents of otherwise different ideological persuasions.
2: I do believe that states are the laboratories of democracy. The laboratories of democracy are the laboratories of democracy.
3: The laboratories of democracy are the laboratories of democracy. But
1: sometimes experiments go wrong. Using a state as a policy lab to test the regulation of the ice market is one thing. But in the years following Liebman's case, the partisan gap between states' policies widened. And the area where states diverged the most was in law after law further codifying racial segregation, especially across the American South. The Jim Crow system made it almost impossible for black Americans to vote and forced them into separate and inferior employment, Housing, education, and transport. Even leisure time was regulated. In Oklahoma, black and white Americans were expressly forbidden from going boating together. In Alabama, they couldn't play each other at checkers or dominoes. Intermarriage was forbidden. Lynchings surged and went almost unpunished. The segregationists' main defense of this system was that civil rights were a matter of states' rights and states' rights alone.
3: Many Southerners are aware of the injustice of denying to the Negro the rights of American citizenship while expecting him to shoulder its ultimate responsibility, that of defending his country with his life.
1: But aided by the upheavals of war, civil rights activists were demanding change.
3: What the Constitution long ago granted him in theory, that to give the Negro equal consideration, equal opportunity, and equal justice will not mean an end to the traditional Southern way of life.
1: And at the 1948 Democratic National Convention, the party listened.
3: I ask the Democratic Party to march down the high road of progressive democracy.
1: Arguing for the Liberals, the mayor of Minneapolis, Hubert Humphrey, made an impassioned case for a new national civil rights platform, including commitments to abolish poll taxes, desegregate the army, and outlaw lynching.
2: The time has arrived in America for the Democratic Party to get out of the shadows of states' rights and to walk forthrightly into the bright sunshine
4: of human rights.
1: On the last day of the convention, the Liberals won in a tight vote. Uproar ensued.
3: Without hatred, without anger, without will, but with disillusionment and disappointment, We are faced with the necessity to walk out of this convention and return to Alabama. The delegation from Mississippi could not be true to the people of that great state if they did not join in this walkout and therefore they joined with us. And we bid you goodbye.
1: The delegations from Alabama and Mississippi stood and walked out. The rest of the South refused to back President Truman's renomination.
3: The Southern revolt against President Truman reaches its climax at Birmingham under the state's rights banner.
1: And when it became clear that Truman was moving ahead with his agenda, Southern former Democrats founded their own party.
3: Then it's another effort on the part of this president to dominate the country by force and to put into
2: effect these uncalled for and these damnable proposals...
1: Strom Thurmond led the new independent states' rights party, known as the Dixiecrats. I tell you, the American people, from one side or the other, had, a, had
2: better wake-up and oppose your programme, and if they don't, the next thing will be a totalitarian state in these United States. The fourth party is born.
1: The Dixiecrats were short-lived. The party lasted just a few months. But the movement foreshadowed a permanent political realignment in the South. In the following decades, southern states turned overwhelmingly to the Republican Party, which would resist anything seen as government overreach. Ever since, while conservatives have tended to push for more freedom for states to innovate, progressives have liked to remind them of the dark past of such arguments for states' rights. Yet, with Republicans well set in national politics, at least for the coming decade, states run by Democrats are rediscovering their enthusiasm for Brandeis's icy laboratory. Idris, let's stick with history here for a little bit and the relationship between states and the federal government. I mean, my very quick one-line summary of this would be that the states had huge power until the early 20th century – And then the First and the Second World Wars happened and the federal government became much more powerful. And then in the later part of the 20th century and until more recently, we've seen a slight reversal of that process. Is that fair? Would you disagree with any of that? I think that the broad trend
5: in American history has been towards more power for the federal government. If you remember before the Constitution, America had a brief experiment with the Articles of Confederation, which it then had to ditch in favor of the Constitution because that was too weak a structure. But the Constitution as it existed in in the first decades of American government, the states still had a lot more power than they certainly do today. And there was a real conflict over what the nature of that divide was was supposed to be in the run-up to the Civil War. There was something called the Nullification Crisis, in which John C. Calhoun basically said that South Carolina didn't have to abide by federal tariffs. Um, That was a big challenge to the sort of supremacy of the federal government. Eventually, this theory spilled over into how the states dealt with slavery and whether or not they could regulate, basically, interstate commerce effectively, because that's what it was at the time. And that, of course, led to the Civil War, after which the federal government was quite a bit stronger and when we get to when Brandeis famously says that states are laboratories of democracy, we're, we're in, the, in the year or two before Franklin Roosevelt launches his new deal and really takes the federal government's power In a direction that had not been contemplated before. Um, He really expanded it using, I think, the the crisis of the Great Depression and then World War II to see the modern federal government. But I I think what we see now is although there's been a bit of retrenchment towards the states given the Supreme Court, I still think that there is a tremendous amount of power that's consolidated within the federal government, within the presidency itself, um, certainly a lot more than I think the
1: founders would have contemplated when they started all of this. Alexandra, as Idris outlined there, this argument about how much power state should have is a really long-running one. And if you update it to now, the dispute goes something like this. On the one hand, there are people who say the states pulling apart is, is bad and it suggests disunity in America and it leads nowhere good, you know, maybe to some kind of soft secession. And then there are other people who say it's actually kind of a safety valve. America's so divided, so partisan, the red tribe and the blue tribe dislike each other so much that the only way to keep the union together is actually to give more power to states and let America diverge, You know, let California be really, really different from Texas.
0: I think it depends on whether or not people are truly comfortable and even the states themselves with other states running experiments. Even the people who say that they're happy to have the empowerment to run their own welfare and healthcare experiments and be in charge of their school policy, et cetera, don't necessarily seem comfortable with the outcomes and policies of the other states and see them as illegitimate. It seems like... The states are trying to battle for the soul of America uh, and are not necessarily happy to coexist with the other policies. So that makes me think that the situation we're in is not necessarily a sustainable one with such radical divergence, uh, especially as we see people fight over jurisdiction and whether or not their policies can actually be applied to people in other states. Like we're increasingly going to see with some abortion laws, trying to punish people who facilitate abortions. And we're going to see many, many more clashes between states going forward.
1: I would say that philosophically, I'm quite attracted to federalism on the basis that I think that decisions made centrally in somewhere like Washington, D.C. will often be decisions that might not fit local circumstances. That said, there are clearly limits to federalism in America, right? We have talked a little bit already about the experiments with federalism gone wrong. And I see the federal government's role partly as to put a kind of floor under that kind of experimentation. And the other caveat I'd say is that... I would be much happier with more federalism, more devolved power in America if I thought that state governments really reflected the views and the wills of people who lived in those states. But persistently over the years, state politics is just much, much more ideologically extreme than the people who live in those states are. Um, And so I think that points to a whole load of sort of structural political systemic changes that you would need in order for the federalism that I'm quite attracted to to really work?
0: A perfect example of what you're talking about is, as it relates to Texas's abortion law, we see about half of Texans not want such an extreme law in place. We now see three-quarters of Americans living in one-party states, and there's going to just continue to be a snowballing effect where the people in power gerrymander and use their power to cement it further. It's hard to imagine how we're going to see the democratic will better reflected in state politics than we do today. If anything, this is just the edge of a cliff and it's we're going to continue to slide toward extremism in my opinion
1: okay well we'll be talking more about that and about how much further it can go in just a moment
0: One of the things I wanted to talk to Governor Reeves and Governor Newsom about is what they see as the ripple effects from this state by state divergence. On the whole, Reeves sees Mississippi as a major beneficiary.
2: Many of these blue states are losing significant population while many of the red states are gaining significant population. Um, and I think that trend's going to continue for, for many years into the future.
0: He it's argues so Mississippi's so biggest competition is now other red states competing to make their policy environments more attractive.
2: It doesn't take a geography major to figure out that we have Texas to our west, Tennessee to our north, and Florida to our east, all three of which have no income tax, and that's who we compete with. For people and jobs and, and other things. So if we want to remain competitive, we've got to lower our income tax and ultimately, I hope, uh, eliminate it.
0: But Reeves um, argues that the way red states are going won't push blue states in the opposite direction indefinitely. In fact, they'll eventually be forced to see the error of their ways.
2: Particularly in in some of these uh, cultural issues, I think there, there are those uh, on the far left that are the pendulum is going to swing so far to the left that um, you 're going to see some more common sense uh, legislation even in those states it 's not going to happen overnight because of the of the, the frenzy that 's going on right now, but I think you 'll see uh, the pendulum shift in that regard as well
0: back in California Gavin Newsom isn 't budging
2: look here 's the way we 're approaching it I can at least
3: express as Californian not passively any longer I want to punch the bullies back can 't take it
0: he admits that the low tax low regulation regimes of many red states have been providing a big draw. But he reckons that red states are going too far on social policy, which will make people and companies rethink where they really want to be.
3: Because the same tools they were using to pull these companies from California in particular, because they've been coming casing our joint for 20 years, taking shots, I think exposes them and creates a real opportunity for blue state governors. California has some tools. I mean, we're giving billions of dollars tax credits. We have five and a half, I just did a $5.5 billion dollar R&D tax credit last year. I mean, that's just one. I mean, we've got tons more. I mean, no one does it with the scale. We're doing it. There's some amazing governors that we already are working together. I mean, we have this West Coast offense, we call it. I mean, we've done it on climate. No other state's doing it more subnationally. I mean, we're gonna keep going where others are not going, and um, not just with other governors, and establish those walls. You can act like you can turn your back to this economy. That doesn't go well in the next quarter or your next shareholder meeting and the next bonus opportunity. California is too essential.
0: Newsom is hopeful that businesses will be catalysts in reversing the migration flows by moving away from red states that don't share their corporate values on issues like reproductive rights.
3: Dollars and cents will bring them to their senses more than anything else. If these companies start to turn their back, it will turn the tide. It's got to be some multinationals saying, enough. We're just not going to do it. This is not consistent with our workforce, but our ability to recruit the best and the brightest from around the world. And it's not who our customers are. Can't have it both ways. And I think it will impact their bottom line. We're offering a completely different path, and I like our chances more.
0: But for political scientist Chris Warshaw, the increasingly different worldviews offered by states are more likely to entrench partisanship. And that has consequences.
4: Right now, with primaries in many states, you know, it's both parties kind of send an extremist through to the general election. And then in these, like, very Democratic or very Republican areas, you know, of course, they're going to vote for the candidate from their own party. So I think what we need are reforms that enable both moderates and extremists to run in the general election. And as partisanship increases, that just gets progressively more difficult for politicians to sort of win elections in, out party, you know, in states where their party is the minority. And I think eventually that's gonna reduce the incentives for politicians to be responsive to the public. If the policies really start to overshoot what the public wants, so that the public really wants there to be maybe more moderate policies than they're actually getting, I think that would be one problem, and political scientists call this over-responsiveness. And as the consequences of, of elections become sort of more weighty, it sort of raises the stakes for everything. And it makes it very difficult for people to accept the consequences of elections, and it makes it more difficult to compromise. So those are kind of like existential stakes for democracy.
0: And for many people in America, including Governor Newsom, there's a second existential question. How long states so divided can remain united?
3: It's a question we're asking ourselves every day, and it's quite literally not an exaggeration to say, and this is a contemporary conversation in our office every day. This is code red code red. I don't want to overstate it. You cannot understate it.
1: Alexandra, states compete a lot for businesses to relocate to those states, right? Often offering big subsidies for them to do so. And so there's this idea that businesses will have a moderating effect on state politics. That's something that Gavin Newsom mentioned there when you were talking to him. What do you make of that? Thesis. I mean, when I look at this, I mainly see businesses getting beaten up by state politicians, state governors, um, rather than you know businesses being able to affect state politics. But maybe I'm missing something.
0: Well, it's a really important point. We've been considering what the impact on people will be from this splintering of state policy. But of course, there are huge impacts for businesses too. America used to be, you know, much more of a single market. And a perfect example of that is on ESG. You know, companies are trying to move more green. And then we've seen West Virginia and Texas actually blacklist financial firms for supposedly boycotting coal. I find Gavin Newsom's argument that that the social shift will force their hand to be a really interesting one. I'm not sure I find it entirely convincing. It seems to me like a particularly Californian argument. You have in California a lot of tech companies with very high margins and very strong views, but it's very hard for me to imagine how other types of companies with lower margins in manufacturing or any other sector would ever consider moving. But I think he does point out a really interesting question, which is the role of companies in all of this.
5: And I think the big states are cognizant of their ability to shape national markets. I mean, California and Texas certainly know that their textbook standards affect basically the kinds that can be distributed throughout the country, just because of how important those markets are. Um, California certainly knows that when it decides, for example, to ban the sale of gasoline-powered vehicles in 2035, it knows that that'll really incentivize the car companies. You know, California and New York, I think, have also banned foie gras on the theory that this will uh, decimate the market, (laughs) um, which is obviously a huge issue. Um, But I think all of these states know how important they are and they try to they try to throw their weight around.
1: I just want to pick up on something Chris Warshaw was saying there. I mean, lots of people listening to this might say, well, why is it the case that state governments don't seem to reflect the views of their voters? You know, this is a democracy. Surely they should get punished if the views of legislators are too out of line with the people they represent. Chris there says that it's all about party primaries. Is it as simple as that? Is there more to it?
0: I very much agree that primaries changed the debate. And we saw this in Texas recently with some of the positions that the governor um, and others are staking out. Abortion is a really good example, um, but it's not the only one. We saw it with permitless carry, which is the idea that people should be able to carry guns in public without a permit or training. Uh, and that went from the political fringe to the mainstream simply because the governor was worried about a primary challenge from the right. Uh, not from the left. And as legislators draw even safer districts, I think this is becoming even more of an issue. So I very much agree with Warshaw.
5: I also think there's just a lot less attention on state politics. We're guilty of that. I think a lot of people who follow the news closely are guilty of that. And it it doesn't manifest itself just in, in primaries, although I think that's part of it. But also, people don't spend that much time thinking about the processes by which state parties select their Heads and and the people who are running state and local Republican and Democratic county chapters, you know, in Arizona, for example, the head of the Republican Party is very out there in terms of her uh, embrace of conspiracy theories. I think the Texas GOP has had some interesting heads as well, and these are these are states that are you know relatively purple. I mean, Texas may be a bit redder than Arizona. But it's not a far right state. And nonetheless, it's very easy for those party apparatuses to be captured by extremists, and that has consequences for the kinds of candidates who are selected in primaries.
0: And this is where the media environment, I think, is so important to consider. Just at the moment that we've seen the internet and social media fanning conspiracy theories and filter bubbles and extremist thought, we've seen the demise of local media, who have historically been extremely important in holding state politicians and local politicians to account, and I think that's a really concerning trend.
5: I will say that on on a lot of things... There hasn't been very much sign of moderation, but I think that after the Dobbs decision, a lot of these Republican states have implemented or promising to implement abortion policy that is so extreme that I think that there will be some forced moderation. I think that uh, what we saw in Kansas was fairly extraordinary. I think it'll hurt Republicans in states like uh, Michigan and Pennsylvania. Uh, states that they think that they ought to have a chance of winning. And we see that Republicans are kind of running away from from Dobbs already in their campaign messaging, um, or they're wiping their websites of, of messaging that they used to win the primaries. That's happened in Michigan and it's happened in Arizona as well. So I think that at least on that one issue, there might
1: be uh, some forces pulling in a more moderate direction. Alexandra, one thing we haven't touched on yet, And deliberately so, because I think the conversation can take on a slightly unreal quality is the secession question, which is a perennial, you know, whenever you're looking at federalism, you can always find some people who think that a state is going to secede. What did you discover or conclude about that?
0: I'm so glad you asked me that because I feel like throughout this conversation, I've been a downer, but now I get to sound very optimistic, which is I do not believe that secession is likely, although um, there are a lot of people who do think that a civil war could happen in the coming years. I think that it's so clear and is increasingly clear how difficult it would be for both red and blue America to completely separate. That blue America would somehow be better off without red America when it comes to energy, or you look at the military bases that are in red America. It's just a totally preposterous idea. So I think we're far, far away from that. Although the tensions in the country are real and acute, I do not see dissolution happening anytime soon.
5: There's a cartographic challenge as well. Like we think of states as either wholly red or wholly blue, but they're like actually quite modeled. Cities are blue, even in red states, like in Kentucky, where I grew up. uh, I grew up in Lexington, which is a blue island. Similarly, in California, you have, you know, fairly conservative parts of the state. So it would just be hard to try to like cut out the like Acela corridor (laughs) and
1: make that its own state. Just the surgery involved would be, I think, impossible. On that relatively upbeat note. I think we should wrap it up and take it to the quiz. Alexandra, I know you've been looking forward to this. This week's quiz has an icy theme. The commercial market for ice took off in the first half of the 19th century. When The Economist was first founded in the 1840s, it used to carry classified ads. And it's notable when you look back through the property or real estate section that one of the most desirable features of a home was the facility of having one's very own ice house. Question one. Which president not only installed an ice house in the White House, but also wrote the first ever recorded recipe for ice cream in America?
0: My knowledge of presidents with any kind of culinary ability is extremely limited.
5: <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe
1: Buchanan? It was, in fact, Thomas Jefferson. The remains of his ice house were discovered when Nixon renovated the press briefing room in the 1960s. Jefferson was apparently inspired by his travels in Europe from where he brought back not only ice cream moulds, but also a waffle iron. His ice cream recipe is pretty simple. Two bottles of good cream, six egg yolks and half a pound of sugar.
0: Sounds French.
1: question two what other thoroughly modern facility newly in vogue in france during jefferson's travels did he install at his white house i have a clue for you which is that the modern white house now has 35 of them is it a wine cellar those must be older um bathrooms bathrooms
0: a restroom yeah i was was... toilets
1: it was, and we may get hung up here on a question of transatlantic terminology. Lose, it was It's indoor lose. Indoor lose, Yeah, exactly. Indoor lose, toilets, restrooms. I think you get a point for that. Water closets, if we're being really old fashioned. Apparently, the executive wing didn't get running water until the presidency of Andrew Jackson. The current White House has 35 bathrooms. Um, so there you go. I think I have used a White House bathroom, but it was before Donald Trump's time.
5: I think I was too scared to use the bathroom. <laughs>
1: well alexandra thank you so much for stopping by
0: thank you for having me it's always fun
1: idris good to see you i hope you get out of that motel alive <laughs> i don't know every time i stare at the ceiling i just get sad <laughs> i should stop staring at the ceiling well i think you better better get out there and do some reporting yeah this episode was produced by Amika shortino nolan and harriet noble If you like the podcast, then please do let people know. That's how we get more listeners, and it makes us happy. Please also leave us a rating and a review. You can now find every episode of Checks and Balance in one place on our shiny new homepage at economist.com slash ChecksPod. We also have a Checks and Balance newsletter. You can sign up for that at economist.com slash newsletters. And you can get in touch with us via email. We enjoy reading those a great deal. Please keep them coming. The address for that is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe. Stay sane. Stay safe particularly applies to you this week, Idris.
5: The stay safe or the stay sane?
1: Maybe both, actually.
5: I think think it's stay sane. It's actually really nice outside. Um, I should just go outside.
1: We'll have more Checks and Balance next week.